Bibles and find Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We are going to be looking this, this morning and the next week that we're in Romans 1, we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17, which are two very important uh, verses in the book of Romans as they are setting the theme ultimately, or a few of the themes, for the entire rest of the letter. And the way I like to look at these two verses as, as though they are a bridge between the introduction, which primarily runs verses 1 through 15, and then into the rest of the body of the letter, which begins in chapter 1 and verse 18. So they're important for us to look at. And as we'll read them in a second, but you'll see that major themes emerge from them, like the gospel, or the gospel of God, and the righteousness of God, and of course, faith as the right response to the gospel of God. And so these themes then will be interwoven through uh, really all of Paul's letter to Romans, but especially up through the next uh, four and a half or five chapters. So they are important for us to look at. Let's read, though, beginning in verse 8. I'm going to read in, uh, verse 8 through verse 17 because there's some context I want to flow into these two verses this morning. So beginning in verse 8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine." I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, help us now to receive your word with meekness, to open our hearts to it, to be willing to accept everything that it says to us and for us. I pray that as we look at these two verses, you would cultivate in us an unashamed boldness in the gospel of your Son. Help me now as I teach and 
exhort from your word that gift me with this. I pray that your spirit would guide me and as well as those who are listening so that we can all be built up into the image of your son. We ask this in his name, amen. Paul says in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Now that comes right on the heels of what he was saying in the introduction. Remember, he's explaining to them that he has wanted to come see them. Here he was, the apostle to the nations, and yet he hasn't come to this church in Rome yet. And he's given some explanation to that. I've wanted to come. I've uh, been praying about it at God's will, but have been hindered and been doing other things that God has directed me in. And so I have been unable to get to you. But I really want to come to you, he says. I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, as well as where I've been preaching the gospel in other places. And he says the reason that he's eager to get to them and the reason he's eager to preach the gospel to them in verse 16, the reason is because he's not ashamed of the gospel. You'll notice that because the first word in verse 16 is that little word for, which is very important, by the way, in the book of Romans because Paul is always building his logic on the previous logical statement that he said. So he's always saying, it's always connecting and he uses that word for, which means you've got to look back and see why it's there. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Remember that Paul has already said that he was called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel was indeed his life and his passion, not just to know it, but to preach and proclaim it to others. To share it. He felt this obligation, as he said in verse 14, to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Doesn't matter who it is or where they are, I sense the obligation by God to share the gospel with people. I remember when I was first saved. I mean truly born again. And it was unmistakable to me and to those around me. And uh, I remember feeling eager to share the gospel. I'll confess that I was less uh, ashamed, to use that word, and I'll explain in a minute what I mean by that, in sharing the gospel then as I am now. Sometimes people think that being a pastor means that Uh, you're not tempted to be ashamed of the gospel at times or uh, not tempted to not want to share the gospel at times or that you're always on fire for the gospel. And frankly, that may be true for some pastors, but including me and many others, sometimes the familiarity week upon week into the word of God and into the gospel actually, uh, well, as we know, familiarity breeds contempt, where it gets so commonplace, it loses that fervor. And it, I'm sure it's not just true for pastors. I know it's true for people as well. We lose the passion for the gospel. And when we lose the passion for the gospel, we lose the passion to share and proclaim the gospel with others and to share it in others' lives. So my desire in these two Sundays that we will spend in these verses is to increase within us a desire to share the gospel, to be unashamed with the gospel. 
to be like Paul. Once again, we're finding ourselves following in Paul's footsteps and following his example, just as he said in Philippians 4, when we read that this morning, to follow in his example now and to become an unashamed people in the gospel of his son. Now, you'll remember that that word gospel means good news. It was not a Christian word first, okay? It was first used in that Roman world and the Greek-speaking world of proclaiming good news, specifically good news that would be uh, run throughout the Roman Empire and proclaiming good news to these villages and and, uh, towns and cities of some great victory that's been accomplished among the Roman Empire. Delegates would be sent into these places and they would proclaim this good news. But of course, uh, the gospel has... Uh, and or uh, Christians have commandeered this word in the early apostles and confined it really to the use of, as Paul explains, remember, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Spirit, scriptures, this gospel, verse 3, concerning his son, right, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's good news, which means it contains words and sentences and paragraphs about God's son, you see. I heard it said once that, uh, uh, well, I don't think it's just said once, it became pretty popular saying, I don't know who said it. But uh, they said, preach the gospel often and use words if necessary. You heard that? Well, that's silly. What they meant by that, of course, is good, like display the gospel in your lives. But you can't share the gospel without the words of the gospel. This is a message. It's designed to be proclaimed, to be spoken, to say it to share it with others, you see. That's what the gospel is. It is a message. It is a good news. He said it's the gospel of God. That means it originates with God and it comes from God. It's not the gospel of man. Peter didn't invent the gospel. Paul didn't invent the gospel. The good news comes from God. It is his. It is not Paul's or any of the other apostles. It's the good news about Jesus, his son, right? His son who was established as God's forever king over God's forever kingdom. The the son who was crucified, yes, buried, yes, but rose again and is now in heaven in glory, ruling in all his authority over the nations. It is the good news of who Jesus is and what God has done through Jesus to bring salvation to the world. And it is a message designed to be proclaimed. And friends, that is all certainly good news for those who believe it, right? It's very good news for those of us who have heard it and responded with faith, which, according to these verses, is always the way you respond to the good news. We should remember this good news every day when we're perusing our news sources in this world and we hear of all the bad news going on and all of the seeming chaos that we see in our world. We're going to see lots of news like that, and that's how it's always been. 
is uh, the world's just filled with this kind of chaotic news, and yet what we need to be reading those newspapers or however you get your news source, we need to be seeing these things and filtering it through the good news that comes from God. And ultimately, when you do that, you will see that God had a plan, has a plan, and is still working out his plan throughout all eternity until the return of his son. And that's really the good news, where the good news ends in the gospel, but begins really for us is when Christ returns again in glory and makes all things new and fixes this mess. That's how you should always keep in mind when you read the daily news. That this is all part of God's gospel plan, and the gospel still stands And we always have good news. This is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. That's what we just read this morning. He's saying it again and again. He repeats himself. All good preachers always repeat themselves. And there's certain things from all good preachers that you can say he always used to say, right? Because there's certain things that need to be said over and over again. We rejoice in the Lord and the good news about our Lord, you see. That's good news. And Paul says he's eager to get to Rome, and he's eager. That's his word. He uses verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's got this eagerness, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And as I pondered this passage this week, I thought it would be important for us to park on that phrase, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and ask ourselves, can we say that same thing? Do we have an eagerness to proclaim the gospel to others? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Or are we bold in it? Let me begin with this question, of course, just answer it quietly in your own hearts and minds, but it's for food for thought as we begin this. Have you ever had the opportunity, the door opened, unmistakably, to share the good news with someone in your life, maybe at work or maybe out in public or maybe a friend or a classmate, and you didn't share it? Like you knew there was an opportunity here and yet you chose for whatever reason to remain silent about the gospel. You ever had that experience? Friends, I'll be honest, I have. So we gotta ask, why didn't we share the gospel? What was the reason we chose to, re- to remain silent Okay, exercised our Fifth Amendment right <laughs> instead of sharing the gospel with that person. Could it be that there was a level there of fear or timidity or embarrassment? Maybe right now you have someone in your life and they are not a believer, and you know it. And you've got this nagging in you, like you have this relationship with them where you can say things to them. And you've got this nagging in you that you should be sharing the gospel with this person. Like they need to be saved like you've been saved. 
and you're not doing it. You need to ask yourself, why am I not sharing the gospel? And friends, these two verses give us the reasons why Paul was eager to share the gospel and not ashamed of the gospel. And our desire and our prayer should be that the Spirit takes these two verses and opens up our heart in such a way that we come out almost new people with this boldness to share the gospel of Jesus with somebody. I heard the testimony of a pastor once, a very well-known pastor, preacher as a matter of fact, And he didn't grow up in a Christian home, uh, but he was in high school and uh, played football. And one day he was in the locker room and one of the other football players came up to him and said, hey, I need to tell you about Jesus. When would you like to do that? (laughs) And he jokes about it because he says the guy was, was like, I'll give you the option of when I'm going to tell you about Jesus. That we can be flexible about, but you need to hear about Jesus. And it was through the witness of that football player that he came to faith in Christ and is now the pastor of a church and preaching, being used of God in various ways. I want us all, myself included, so this is one of those messages you get to listen in on, but I'm going to preach to myself. I want us all to to get to the point where we're like Paul, we're unashamed of the gospel. But why, I think in order to do that, before we get into not being ashamed or the reasons Paul lists to not be ashamed about the gospel and to get us excited about it again, I think we need to ask the question, what what reasons do we have sometimes of being ashamed? That is, why we wouldn't share it or be as bold about it as we could. And there are so many reasons. I could fill up the whole message with that, and I don't want to do it because I have a direction that I'm headed. But let me just name a few of these, okay? Maybe it is that you don't like to stand out. Maybe in your personality, you're one of these people that don't want to be different. You don't want to be the center of attention. And uh, uh, frankly, the thought of uh, being known then in, around others as a disciple of Christ who actually shares his or her faith is scary to you. You may face a, a certain level of timidity. You may be afraid in that sense and therefore kind of ashamed to share the gospel. You know, if you feel that way at times, you're not alone. Did you know in, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verses 6 through 8, he said, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, listen, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That is, don't be ashamed of the gospel. That's what the testimony about our Lord is. It's the gospel. Don't be ashamed of it. Why? Because God didn't give you that spirit of fear or timidity. And he says that to you, friends, so that every time you feel that, Like you're about to chicken out when you're going to share the gospel, but you're about to chicken out because you don't want to share it in that moment. He wants you to recognize that feeling does not come from God. He didn't give us a spirit of fear. That doesn't come from God. But he gives us the spirit of 
power and love and self-control. That is a power, really, that is not your own, but enables you to, to share the gospel. And a love for people that would recognize if I'm not a person that shares the gospel, that is, I hold this good news about salvation to myself, that's very unloving. We couldn't get much more unloving than that. Especially when God opens up opportunities to share the gospel and we hold it in. Friends, that is the epitome of selfishness, really. What if everybody in your life had held in the gospel from you? And you never had an opportunity to hear and believe. That's not love. And he says he's given them a spirit of power and love and self-control, a sound mind that doesn't even let its mind or emotions go into that direction of fear and control himself or herself, but is actually in control in that moment. That comes from God. No, you share the gospel with this person. The boldness to share the gospel then comes from God. Do we see that? It's not your personality. It's not something comes from you. It comes from God himself who will and does provide everything you need to be an unashamed, bold witness for the gospel. He'll provide it in the moments. He even told his disciples in, in one context, when you're called before kings to give testimony about me and you're called before certain people, it's going to be such an intimidating thing. He says, but I don't even want you to think in advance of what you're going to say. I want you to be so trusting in me that in those moments, I will give you the words to say, you see. The boldness to be unashamed of the gospel comes from God. Or maybe, friends, maybe for you, you're ashamed and, and give up gospel opportunities with people because you don't want to be made fun of. You don't want to be viewed as a fuddy-duddy stick in the mud or a self-righteous person or somebody that doesn't have any fun. I mean, look at this in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 to 4. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They actually start to make fun of you and malign you because you won't join in with them. Maybe you know that to be the case, and maybe for some of you younger, especially in, your young, in younger crowds, former friends, which is what Peter would have been referring to here, these are people you used to hang out with and do all these same kinds of things, and now God has saved you, and you don't anymore. And you know they malign you, and you don't want to be maligned, and so you remain silent. Or maybe you don't like to be lumped in with other Christians or Christian groups, especially the ones that become more well-known across our culture. I can remember a lot of times not wanting to be lumped in um, with, uh, with the, the, the Trinity Broadcasting Network crowd and the faith healers and the health and wealth prosperity people. And I just think, man, I, if I can't qualify what kind of Christian I am uh, to people, I'm almost embarrassed to, to call myself a Christian because I don't want to be lumped in with people like that. Maybe it's because you don't feel like you have all the answers. 
And you're afraid that they're going to ask you questions because this world is becoming increasingly skeptical. And they're getting more and more questions about the truthfulness of the Bible or how this connects with science or all of these other questions. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, if I get this conversation going, they're going to ask me something and I'm not going to know how to answer it. Friends, that's why, and I'll just give you a sneak peek of next time, it's so important to understand that the gospel itself is the power of God into salvation. Do we understand that? It's not your cleverness. It's not your ability to answer every objection because you'll never be able to. You have time to sit and research all the different types of answers to questions. They have the time to keep coming up with questions. So as long as there's skeptics, there's always going to be questions and you're never going to have an answer for everything. You don't need it because you have the answer to everything. It's the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. So if you know the gospel, that's all you need, right? Maybe it's because the gospel, the Bible itself, sounds silly to our modern culture and our modern sensibilities. I mean, you're not even to chapter 3 of the Bible and you've got a snake that's talking. And people laugh at that. You know, it's really nothing new because even in Paul's day, he said that the Greeks were, they considered the gospel foolishness. They'd hear that message. It's like, this is folly. This is silly. Maybe it's because the gospel is exclusive. And I mean by that, it means that the gospel says there is no other way of salvation except Jesus. So if somebody believes something different and they think they're on their way to heaven for something different, you are saying to them, literally, you are wrong And there's no possibility of me being wrong. And the gospel is the only way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're fearful of looking arrogant or proud. Could be a number of reasons. May you have others in your mind. Many reasons to be ashamed of the gospel. But what I want to hone in on now for a few minutes is this. I think what is going to be increasingly prevalent among Christians in our culture is we will be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel doesn't begin with good news. The gospel begins with bad news. And the bad news, if we were to summarize it, and this is where Paul will begin in verse 18 of chapter 1 and run all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, The bad news is that God is righteous and therefore has righteous wrath and that wrath is directed to every human being because they are sinners. And not only that, there is nothing they can do to save themselves. They lack the righteousness they need. They lack the power and ability they need to save themselves. And that message, friends, is offensive to our culture. Have you not seen this yet? We live in a culture where everybody thinks they're generally good people. 
And the gospel doesn't begin with the premise that you and I are generally good people. And if people do believe in a God, they believe in a God of love. And that's it and that's all. And in their definition of love, love just lets anybody do what anybody wants. And there's never any judgment or retribution. But when Paul wants to explain the gospel to a congregation, he introduces the letter and then he says, okay, let's talk about the gospel. And he begins in verse 18. And he begins with that. Look at it in verse 18. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And from that verse, guys, it literally runs all the way through chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20 before he gets to any more good news. He goes out of his way to mount the case against every single human being, you're under God's righteous wrath because you are a sinner. And I don't care, says Paul, essentially, who you are or where you came from. I don't care if you're one of the nations or one of the Jews. I don't care if you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't matter. You're under God's wrath because of your sin and there's nothing you can do about it to remedy it in your own by yourself. And that is an offensive message. And that offense that we know the gospel will cause to our culture, and this is going to continue to increase, the culture is going to be very offended. The culture, remember, is is going to be shifting out of that Judeo-Christian understanding and premise that we're all bad people, and people are untrustworthy in that way. Did you know you're... The Constitution was formed of our nation around the premise that the founding forefathers had that every, nobody can be trusted because everybody is bad by nature. That is turning now. And our culture doesn't want to be told they are bad. But friends, you can't have the good news, right, without that bad news. Otherwise, what's the good news? And that bad news is very, very offensive to our culture. These next couple of chapters that we'll be getting into in detail, I like to think of them as a courtroom scene in which God is the judge and the jury and the executioner, so to speak. That Paul is the prosecuting attorney and he's going to level this case against the whole world. The charge is sin. The punishment is condemnation. And he will get everyone to the end, to the point where they have no defense. There's nothing they can say. They stand guilty as charged. And that is an offensive understanding of human nature and of God to our world. But did you know, this is the very reason they hated Jesus. We think about it, Jesus would have been the kindest man to ever live, most loving, most wise and knowledgeable. When it comes to just his human relationships, the most harmless, not in though he couldn't inflict harm, but he never would because he was meek, meekest man that it would have ever lived. 
and yet the world hated him. And we don't need to scratch our our head as to why he explained very clearly why the world hated him. He said this in John chapter uh, 7, and I got to find it here. Is it up there? Wyatt, John 7, do I have that verse? Nope. Sorry. Yes, I do. The world cannot hate you, but, I, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Why did the world hate Jesus to the extent that they killed him? Because he came in and he said, your works are evil. And man, that's in the context ultimately of the main people that were responsible of turning Jesus over to be crucified were the Pharisees, the Jews, the good people who thought they were doing good works. And he's even saying to them, your good works are evil. I mean, in keeping exactly with what Isaiah had said, all your righteousness is like filthy rags. All your good is not good. And that's offensive to the world. That's offensive to the culture. You know, it takes a work of God in a person's heart to get them to the point where they will agree with what I'm saying. So if you agree with what I'm saying about yourself, understand that's been a work of God in you. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus was talking about the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and he said this, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, when you get a person, and this is very important when you're working with people, and you get a person who is to the point where they are acknowledging, man, I'm a sinner. I can't change myself. And I know God is angry with me because of my sin. You've got a person in a very good position. You've got a person who has seen something that the Spirit has given them to see. It is their own sin and the righteousness they need but lack and the judgment that is coming upon them. Before a person can fully embrace the good news, they have to be convicted, convinced of the bad news. That's why we can't neglect it, right? That's why we can't bypass it or find another way to more palatably proclaim the good news, you have to begin with the person being in real trouble because there is a righteous God and his wrath, even right now, is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Even right now it is, let alone what is to come. They need to see it so that the Spirit can convince them of their need of a savior. The wrath of God is a very unpopular topic. It's not one that we would usually bring up at uh, social gatherings and uh, want to listen. Hey, let's sit around and discuss the wrath of God. You know, conversation starters. If you've got that game when you have people over and put little cards on the table of conversation starters, I guarantee you've never, nor will you ever, see the wrath of God on one of those little cards. But the gospel begins with this very simple and very scary premise that there is a God and he is angry with sinners. He's angry with sinners. And he's angry with sinners because of what Paul tells us in verse 17. He's righteous. 
The right, there is a direct connection in verse 17 between the righteousness of God and verse 18, the wrath of God. Did you know that? That the righteousness of God actually leads to the wrath of God. You know, we've, there's, a, there's new uh, thought going on in our culture about uh, social justice and social justice issues. We see this going on. And uh, social injustice, things that become a hashtag and a, uh, uh, you know, a topic of really conversation among the media and things is social injustice. And basically the idea is something unjust has happened and people feel, right, they feel angry about that injustice. When we see true injustice, okay, I'm going to put that qualifier on it, true social injustice, we should be angry about that. But where does that anger come from in human beings? Why are they angry about injustice? When we see Putin invading Ukraine, why is that unjust? Based on whose standards? Why is that wrong for one nation to go in another and conquer? As a matter of fact, that's the way the history of the world has been forever. Men like Putin who say, I want that land, so I'm going to go and get it now. That's the history of the world. We've all studied world history. We know empires and how they work. Why is that unjust? Where does that sense of outrage come from? Friends, I'm suggesting to you that it comes from God. Because we're made in his image. And God's righteousness then, when it sees injustice, becomes angry. Not in a fly-off-the-handle way, but because he's righteous. He's holy. He cannot tolerate to look upon evil, the Bible tells us. As a matter of fact, Psalm 7, verse 11 says this. God is a righteous judge, and catch this, and a God who feels indignation every day. You ever think about God like that? He's a, what kind of judge? He's a righteous judge. And as a righteous judge, he feels indignation every day. Why? Because he sees, that's Romans 1.18, he sees the unrighteousness and ungodliness of man and his righteous character responds with what we call the wrath of God against it. When Paul wants to begin sharing the gospel, and I suggest that we feel, follow Paul's footsteps here, when he wants to share the gospel with people, he begins with the wrath of God, not the love of God. You see, what people have to understand, and what we all had to come to this point, we all had to come to this point, if we're truly saved, that we were in real trouble with God. He's angry because of sin, and he has every right to be. And that we need to be saved from the wrath of God to come. And that is when and how we then turn to Jesus Christ, the one, Paul says, who delivers us from the wrath to come, you see. It always begins with his wrath. People need to know they're in trouble now. My time is coming to a conclusion. I haven't even gotten off page two of my notes. So I said two weeks, I don't know what we're going to do. But here's the thing. Let me... Let me kind of bring this to a conclusion with this illustration. This idea of the wrath of God is, is something that I think largely the Christian church is neglecting and has been for a long time. 
And I think it's because they're ashamed of it. And I'll give you an illustration of that. Uh, the, the Presbyterian Church USA, so you've got the Presbyterian Church and they have a number of uh, denominations under that, okay? Affiliations. One of them is the PCUSA, and is, to my knowledge, all the Presbyterian churches in Grand Junction are PCUSA, to my knowledge, because we had Presbyterians come here once and I thought, well, maybe they'd be happier in an OPC, which is a very conservative branch, or the PCA, which is a conservative branch, but there wasn't one. PCUSA. So back in 2013, the PCUSA was publishing a new hymn book for their congregations to sing. And they wanted to include in that hymn book, In Christ Alone. Now we all sing uh, In Christ Alone here. We sing it quite often. It is a modern classic hymn that will stand the test of time, both in its content and in its melody. It's one of those, they'll sing like Amazing Grace. As a matter of fact, it's been compared to Amazing Grace, okay? And, uh, but they, they loved the hymn, but they wanted to change one line in the hymn. The line was this, till on that cross as Jesus died, can everybody know what it is? The wrath of God was satisfied. And they read that and they said, I just don't like that. We just don't like that phrase. And so they proposed to the authors of In Christ Alone a new phrase. Okay, so the authors are uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, who are still around, Stuart Townen. Uh, we sing some of their music here. They asked them, can we change it to this? Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. We'd like to exchange wrath for love because it is, after all, much more palatable to people and it's a little more taboo to talk about wrath. It's so negative. And of course the Gettys and Stuart Townend said, no way. Because that's the gospel. Let me show you exactly where that comes from and we'll close with this passage. Now look at some good news. Let me land us here with some good news. Chapter 3, 20, verse 21. Maybe I'll reference this as we go through these first chapters because we always got to be brought to it. You know, from uh, verses one, or chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, talks about the righteousness of God and then in verse 18, he leaves that phrase off and he leaves it off all the way until right now in chapter 3, verse 21. And he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You know what that word propitiation means? And it's in the good translation still. It means an appeasement of wrath. In other words, he... Way back, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed for unrighteousness and, uh, against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And he gets all the way here to chapter 3, verse 21, and here again now, we have this great news that what God has done for sinners, for all those who would believe in him, he put forward his son as that wrath-absorbing sacrifice, or as the Gettys put it, uh, as on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's where it teaches it, right here. And friends, was that a demonstration of the love of God? You bet it was. 
And when God's inconceivable love and mercy and grace demonstrated in the fact that he had his son bear our wrath on that cross. You bet it is. That's love that we'll never fully conceive of. But you'll never fully understand that love and that grace and that mercy if you don't first see the wrath of God. Otherwise, you get to that and you read it and you say, why would God do that? It's because he's loving that he made provision for sinners to be saved from his wrath. That's the good news it's the power of God and salvation. Has it been for you? Are you believing in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him now? When you read that gospel paragraph in chapter three and, and you're in your mind's eye, do you see Christ put forward on the cross for you and for your sins? Have you received that him by faith? It is my prayer that all of us in this room have and that we will become more and more excited in the upcoming weeks about this gospel, more and more unashamed of it, and more and more eager to preach it to those around us. Let's pray.